0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Are you doing a repair that needs a special tool? O'Reilly Auto Parts makes it easy with our loaner tool program. Over 80 specialized loaner tools are available, so we're sure to have a tool in stock to help you get that job done right purchase the needed parts, put down a deposit on the loaner tool, return that tool in its original condition, and then you receive a full refund. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day.
2: But I'll tell you what, that run is success. I've said for a long time, I don't think that's going to be duplicated ever again in any sport, but the Patriots are getting pretty close to doing it now. But, you know, I don't know how many more years Brady has left in him. but, you know, I, I can say for sure that, you know, there isn't anybody in baseball that's going to go out there and win that many division titles in a row again like we did.
1: What's cracking? Welcome to episode 83 of the Jim Rome Podcast. Thank you for finding it and giving it a spin. This week's guest is a first ballot Hall of Famer a 300-game winner, a World Series MVP, a 10-time All-Star, a 4-time Silver Slugger, a 2-time Cy Young Award winner, a father of 5, and the proud possessor of a 1.6 handicap. That unbelievable resume belongs to none other than former MLB great Tom Glavin. From the suburbs of Boston to the baseball diamond for two dominant decades to the broadcast booth and the golf course, Tom Glavin has lived and is living one hell of a life. So I was pumped to get caught up proper with him for this podcast. So get your popcorn ready, sit back, relax. Here comes Ep 83 of the Jim Rohn podcast with Tom Glavin. It's been a minute or so, but Tom, it is so good to have you on this podcast. We always had great conversations when you played the game. What's up? How you feeling?
2: Uh doing good. You know, uh, settled into uh, life after baseball, and uh, you know, doing broadcasting now. Picked up. Uh, my pace a little bit there, doing some more games, getting a little involved with that. So uh, life is good, and kids are growing up, so no
1: complaints here. Good to hear it, and they're growing up fast, aren't they? I could speak for that, too. Let me do this. Let me start you off with some hockey, because as many people know, you were a great hockey player. In fact, we're drafted by the LA Kings, but you're also all about the hometown Bruins. What were you thinking last night, game one of the Stanley Cup final? Boston had 11 days off. They fell behind St. Louis 2-0 in the first game. How concerned were you at that point?
2: Uh, you know, a little bit. I mean, uh, certainly, uh, at, at 2 nothing, the next goal is,
1: is hugely critical.
2: Uh, there's no question that, uh, you know, as much as you, you root for a sweep and you want to see him move on, uh, I think the sweep definitely had an effect on them in the first period. They, you know, they had some moments of, of getting some, some good scoring opportunities, but no sustained offensive action and, uh, felt like when they came out in the second period, uh, that goal that Clifton scored, really kind of got them jump-started, and from that point on, uh, I think they were the better team. So hopefully they've uh, gotten the rust out of their system, and, and there's more of what I saw in the second and third period for the rest of the series.
1: Spoken like somebody who played the game at a high level. In fact, as you go back, Tom, when you were drafted in two sports, obviously you played baseball, obviously that was the right decision, but in making that decision, did you like baseball better, or were you just better at baseball? Um, I liked pitching better uh,
2: but I didn't I didn't like uh, baseball the game per se better than I liked hockey I mean you know I, I had an equal love for both um, but certainly it was the the intensity the being in the action you know being in the fire so to speak uh, of playing hockey every time you step on the ice obviously when I was on the mound it was very similar feelings you know you're, you're you're on the mound, you're in the action, you, you're, you're, you are the action, you control the action, so to speak. And, um, you know, being playing hockey, you kind of get that every time you step on the ice. So uh, that part was, was probably the same. But overall, I probably liked the game of hockey just a little bit better. But um, at that stage of the game, you know, I was 175 pounds coming out of high school. So, you know, I was kind of a dime a dozen as, as far as an NHL prospect was concerned. I was a left-handed pitcher, and that gave me an advantage in baseball that I didn't have in hockey, so I thought it would be smart to try and use that.
1: You know, there's that, and then there's that age-old question. Tom, should you play multiple sports, or should you take all that time and energy and just lock it in one? I think there's a lot of parents listening right now that are kind of curious where you come out. Now, clearly that worked for you. You played a couple of sports. Have times changed, or would you still encourage kids to play multiple sports? Well, I mean, I encourage
2: mine to play multiple sports. Um, you know, my my biggest fear when you settle on one sport early in life is I, I just, I'm afraid that at some point in time early on in high school, you're going to get burned out and you're not going to want to play anymore. And, you know, I think for me as a kid, I saw that more in the Northeast with guys that played hockey because, uh, you know, it's obviously it's easier to play hockey year-round up there, although down here in Atlanta, um, you know, it's it's not hard to play hockey year-round down here either now. So, Uh, that's my big fear is, is you just, you're going to get to a point early in life where you're going to get burned out. And I'd hate to see that happen, but I do think also that playing multiple sports makes for a better athlete. And, and, you know, I've, I've had, I've had this discussion with people or this debate with people, you know, I know everybody in, in every sport right now is bigger, faster, stronger. I understand that. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll settle, I'll, or I'll, uh, Locked in on baseball because I don't know the other sports as well. But I look at baseball now, and yeah, guys are bigger, guys are faster, guys are stronger. They've been playing baseball all their lives, but I'm not sure the game's played any better. And I think that speaks to a little bit of what's the caliber of athlete that's out there playing the game. And, and, you know, for the most part, it's baseball athletes now. It's not – you're not talking about multi-sport athletes anymore. And, and, you know, I I think the game – has suffered a little bit in terms of the athleticism of the guys
1: on the field. It's really interesting. And then in terms of the job that you were paid to do back in the day, listen, you can't pick when you're born. You can't pick when you get to play. And I know you accept that. And if you could put the money aside for a minute, too, because you can't pick – at all when you play. The game and the way pitchers are used now obviously are so much different than they were even in your generation. You know, back then, you wanted to finish what you started. Then, you probably hope to give them seven, maybe get it to the setup guy who gets it to the closer. Y'all go home. Thanks for coming. Now the real arms seemingly are in the bullpen. Tell me, tell me I'm wrong, but it seems like effectively they're telling you you're not good enough to get a third look at that lineup. How would that make you feel as a pitcher? And would you like shouldering less of a load, or did you want all that responsibility yourself?
2: No, I mean I think you want to shoulder as much of it as you
1: can, right? But I, I think again, you talk, you know, you start talking about generations
2: of the game. Every generation changes a little bit, right? I mean, the generation years ago, I mean, those guys threw both both games in a double header. They throw four hundred pitches in a day, and you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but um, you know that was that was what that was. And then the next generation was, you know, they'd make thirty five, forty. A year to throw three hundred something innings, um, and then my generation comes along, and if you're, you know, you're throwing two hundred and fifty innings, you're doing a lot. Um, and my generation got criticized from the generation before because we didn't complete enough games. Well, in, you know, that wasn't what we were we grew up on or how we were groomed. We also got criticism for, you know, being a part of a five man rotation instead of a four. And, and I think for me, particularly with the four man rotation situation. To me, that was, just an, that was just a result of what you were conditioned to do, what you were brought up to do. We were brought up to be part of a five-man rotation, so that's what we did. I know for me personally, most times, I would have been ready to pitch on the fourth day uh, in normal circumstances, but that, that isn't what we did. That, that isn't how we do it. Just, just like it became more of a, hey, do your best to get to the seventh inning and limit the bullpen to six outs. If you can really get them to the eighth inning and limit the bullpen to three outs, now you're really on to something. If if you're asking your bullpen to get nine outs, you're in trouble. And this generation, that number has ticked down even more. And it's, you know, on on, on a nightly basis, you see bullpens trying to get nine outs in a game. And and, and it gets really iffy when you're asking a bullpen to get 12 outs in a game. But, again, that's the way the game is now. And I'm not sure that for a lot of these guys, who get taken out in the fifth inning or second time through the lineup, I'm not sure they're not capable of doing it. They're just being told that they can't do it. They're not allowed to do it because so much of it has become numbers, numbers, numbers. Like back in the day, you know, you would hear managers all the time, you know, like a Bobby Cox or whatever, talk about making decisions and whether or not you make decisions by the book. Well, the analytics in today's game have become the book. And I think more and more you're seeing decisions made based on the analytics. And it just makes it a cleaner situation for everybody because they can always fall back on that. But uh, I I don't. I think more guys are capable of going through the lineup a third or a fourth time. I just don't think they're being given the chance to do it very often.
1: You know, Tom. To that point, you know, one thing about the analytics. I'm not going to be that guy who says, "Hey, get off my lawn." I'm not going to say that. I mean, it would be so foolish not to rely on the data that you have right now, but does the data account for things like, you know, intangibles like toughness, grit, heart, drive? How do you measure those things, which still do matter, through analytics?
2: Um, I don't know that you can. I think that's where, you know, you have to, as much as the numbers tell you a story, and I agree there's information there that's very useful, uh, and I try not to be one of those guys that just dismisses it wholeheartedly because I do think there are things that can be very helpful if you know how to use it and you know how to interpret the information. But I, I agree, or I, I, I should say that to your question, no, the analytics can't measure the intangibles. And, and you know, I've got friends of mine who i played with uh, who are scouts now or in the front office with people, and they talk about the conversations that people have and the analytics and and at the end of it all, they all want to ask the same question. And that same question is, okay, that's great, but can the kid play? Can he play? And, you know, the numbers don't always tell you that. And, and when, when you ask whether or not a kid can play, a lot of the times you're asking, okay, what's in his heart and what's in his head? What's his compete level? Is he going to go out there and come hell or high water? He's going to find a way to be successful? Or is he just going to be one of those guys that doesn't want to fight his way through? Is he going to find a way to be excellent, or is he just okay being mediocre or being whatever? So, you know, the analytics can't tell that story, and I think that's where, you know, the eye test still has some value, I just or has a lot of value. I just don't know how much the eye test is being used anymore.
1: Tom, uh, maybe it's a really bad analogy on my part, but to what you just said, I feel like sometimes when I drive my car— I'm not proud of this, but I won't even look behind me to actually look or wait for the sensors to tell me whether or not I'm going to back into something. I wonder if this is the same thing with analytics. I mean, are guys using their eyes and brains and looking at what's out there, or are they just referring to the numbers and trusting them exclusively?
2: I, you know, I think there's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think it, we've seen kind of fluctuations where, you know, teams that were kind of first to the scene uh, with analytics were kind of all in. Uh, and then you had some teams that, you know, kind of didn't really want to go that way yet, um, or maybe they dipped their toe in the water. Uh, and then when teams started having success that were using analytics, then it seems like more teams all dove in and went completely with the analytics and kind of eliminated the eye test and all that. I think there's a healthy balance. What that balance is, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it varies from team to team based on the players you have, but. I don't believe there's anything analytics included that, that creates a one size fits all for everybody. You know, what I mean, and the thing that I that I have a hard time with, particularly, is on the pitching side because you know I understand the launch angle and guys are trying to drive the ball and do this and do that, but not everybody can pitch up in the strike zone effectively. And and to me, not every guy should want to. You know, you got a guy like uh, you know a guy on our club, uh, Mike Soroka. Here's a young kid who's got a filthy sinker and throws hard and very successful down in the zone, and that's what he does. And, and for, for a guy like that to try to pitch up in the zone, I'm not sure it's the smartest thing to do. So, you know, that to me is where I, I feel like I've seen a big difference from my generation in terms of scouting reports and how hitters are being attacked. You know, when we when I was doing my thing or, or we were doing our thing in here in Atlanta, Every scouting report we had, it was then interpreted pitcher by pitcher based on what we did well and what we were good at. And if a guy wasn't a good breaking ball hitter, well, that didn't really mean a whole lot to me because I didn't throw a lot of breaking balls. So, you know, you, you had to kind of tailor those scouting reports to to your game and and make it fit what you did well. And I think a lot of times in today's game, I see guys trying to fit a scouting report into their game, which is a game they're not very good at. And I see a lot of guys struggle because of
1: it. Now, Speaking of your generation and your rotation, of course, you, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, three unbelievable pitchers, and obviously there was a healthy competition among you all, both on the field and on the golf course. I got to ask, though, do you remember, and I'm sure you remember, but what do you remember thinking when John Smoltz went into the 96 season and said, I'm going to win the Cy Young Award this season. I'm going to snap Maddox's streak. What did you think when he said that?
2: Um, you know, if you know Smolti, you don't doubt anything he says, or you don't bet against him. Put it that way. I mean, Smolti was one of those guys that, uh, there wasn't much that he didn't feel like he couldn't do if he challenged himself to do it. And sometimes he got himself in trouble because of it. But for the most part, that's what made him tick. That's what made him great was that he had a competitive side to him, uh, that worked really well for him. And, and a lot of it had to do with challenging himself to get outside of his comfort zone. You know, I know from e, um, I knew what I did well, and I tried to stay within that zone, and and very, very rarely did I venture outside of it uh, and try to, uh, you know, experiment with things or do things. But, you know, Smolte was the complete opposite. He There wasn't anything he didn't think he could do. I mean, if, you know, I've seen the guy go out there and, and never throw a knuckleball in a game and break out a knuckleball because his elbow was killing him, and he had a pretty good one. So um, that was what made him tick was was that that notion that, hey, if you challenge me to do something or I challenge myself to do something, I'm going to do everything I can to prove that I can do it.
1: Man, it tells me a couple of things right there. Number one, this guy was willing to do anything he possibly could within the rules to try to win. I mean, how brass is that, Tom? What kind of courage does it take to not throw a knuckleball and then in a major league game throw it to a major league hitter?
2: Uh, it takes a lot you know and you know again sometimes the uh, necessity is the mother of invention right i mean he his elbow was was shot and he knew it and he was doing everything he could to try and survive and uh, if he felt like uh, throwing a knuckleball a gave him a little bit more shelf life or b gave him a pitch that uh, at least got guys off of uh, his his fastball or slider that maybe weren't as nasty because he couldn't finish pitches the way he wanted to because of his elbow then again he was willing to try it but you know, it's, it's one thing to think you can do those things. It's another thing to actually physically go out there and be able to do those things. And, and, I, and again, it gets back to the part of the conversation we had earlier. John was a great athlete, a two-sport athlete, maybe three-sport athlete, and, and you know, tremendous basketball player. So I'm not surprised, given his, his athletic ability, that uh, he was able to do a lot of those things that uh, he challenged himself to do. Let
1: me ask you something. Have you ever said any of the following? I'm not going very far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Listen, don't kid yourself. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you've used any of these excuses or any others, you are putting yourself at great risk of injury or even death. In 2017, more than 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 51% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing seatbelts. So no matter what kind of a vehicle you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still have to buckle up. Same thing goes for when you ride in taxis or use ride-sharing services, too. Cops are on the lookout. They're writing tickets. Why would you take that risk? In 2017 alone, seatbelts saved nearly 15,000 lives. So do the smart thing. Buckle up every trip, day or night. Click it or ticket paid for by NHTSA. And then, Tom, you've got Greg Maddox. In fact, I want to say that in the mid to late 90s, I did a TV interview with a couple of you guys, and one of the guys I know was Maddox, because I remember thinking how unusual it was that Greg Maddox agreed to do a TV interview, but he only agreed to do it if one of you guys came with him and he said to us, I think I was on ESPN still, he said, I've got eight minutes so we're doing this interview, Tom and I ask a really good question, a long question, kind of like this one, and I save it for Maddox and I'm really proud of it and then the second I'm done asking the question, it was either you or John Smoltz and you said, quote, I'll handle that one, Jim, Greg left. And I remember thinking to myself, in the middle of an interview like, it wasn't, it was not an offensive question, but he meant literally, I've got eight minutes, and I think that when I got to eight he just bounced. Was that you by chance and even if it wasn't does that sound like something Maddox would do Uh,
2: I don't remember who answered the question but yeah that sounds like Greg and he doesn't do it in a a disrespectful way I mean I think Greg was just Greg is one of those guys that um was was not a lot into the media because he wasn't really into talking about himself you know I mean for for a guy who was probably the greatest pitcher of our generation uh he very rarely liked to talk about himself and what he was doing so you know, I guarantee you that his agreeing to do an interview like that was, was, I can tell you what the answer was right now. Yeah, I'll do it if, if Glavin and Maddox or Glavin and Smoltz are doing it. I don't want to be the guy that says no. So, you know, that, that to me is Greg and, and that's how he was. But, you know, yeah, he was. He, he, he was very, very, Greg was very routine oriented and, and, you know, I don't want to say he had things down to the minute. But if he had stuff that he had to do to get ready for his next start or or things of that nature, then not much was going to get in the way of that. And if he he told you he had eight minutes, then my golly, he probably had a stopwatch on and there's your
1: eight minutes. I got to go do what I got to go do. And let me be very clear about this. Not only did I not take offense to it, I actually loved it. It was like the most Greg Maddox thing ever. I couldn't believe he actually sat down. And then when he did that, I'm like, that's perfect. Because I know we'll never talk to him ever again, and that's a great story. So, yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. And then, Tom, so much has been made of the golf that you and Smoltz and Maddox played. I bring this up only because John Smoltz told me, and I'm sure others as well, that playing golf literally prolonged his career by four or five years because it kept him from getting burnt out on baseball. What about you? Did swinging the clubs with those guys mean as much to you professionally as it did to Smoltz?
2: 100%. Um, You know, I don't think there's any question – Uh, that it prolonged all of our careers from the standpoint of of just having that outlet to get away from the game. I mean, look, baseball is a long season, and it's a grind. And, and, you know, it's difficult for people to comprehend who aren't baseball fans. 162 games, you play every night, you're traveling all the time. Uh, You know, a lot of people have a hard time understanding what's even fun about that, to be honest with you. But... That's what we did, and that's you know that was the scheduling, and that was the whole nine yards. And you got to have an outlet to get away from all that. And for us, it was golf. Um, You know, we like to go out and play. And and you know the good thing about it was was a couple of things. You know, I always liked playing the day after I pitched because if I had a you know either way. It was going to get me out. It was going to get me moving around. It was going to knock a lot of the stiffness out from the night before and things of that nature. If I had a great game the night before, then yeah, I was going to have a, you know, it was going to be a lot of fun. If I had a bad game the night before and I was ticked off, then generally speaking, by the time 18 holes was over, I was in a better mood and I was ready to move on and and go about my business for my next start. But I think what, what gets lost in all of that is something that I think is lost a lot in today's game too is the conversations that we would have about baseball and the conversations we would have about things that we were doing, whether it was a team that we were getting ready to face and how we were going to go through that lineup, or if one of us was struggling with something uh, either on the mound or off the field, whatever the case may have been, it was it was an outlet to talk about it. I mean, you talk about being uh, in a great situation. I mean, we had a great pitching coach in Leo Mazzoni But then, you know, we had two other guys that we were around for a long time that were another set of eyes that had a really good idea of what we looked like when we were pitching well, and were pretty good at identifying some things that were going wrong if maybe we were struggling. So, again, a lot of the time those were our conversations. It wasn't like we went out on the golf course and baseball was just completely dismissed. It was our outlet, like you say, to get away from it. But we did talk a lot of baseball, and we did talk a lot about uh you know things that we were doing and hitters and things of that nature so you know it it was productive as well we learned a lot about what what we were trying to do and what each one of us was trying to do and and ultimately that was always helpful when one of us was struggling and with something and looking for some answers
1: it's so fascinating i mean so that was time extremely well spent and not just to get away from the field but to be out there physically mentally comparing notes i'm curious then tom when you went to the mets what happened to your golf game? Was it the same outlet? Was it as productive? Who did you play with then? You know, the bad thing was when I was in Atlanta, Smolty was like uh, he was Julie McCoy from the
2: Love Boat. He was he was the cruise director, and and we would basically get on the plane, and by the time the we touched down, he would tell us what time we needed to be in the lobby, where we were playing, and whether or not we had our car coming to get us, or we had or where we had a rental car, which he usually took care of most of the time. So, I mean, it was fantastic. You just had to get yourself to the lobby at whatever time he told you to get there the next day, and, and it was game on. So in New York, uh, I had to do more of that myself. I had to I had to set stuff up. I had to situate things. Um, I forget who I even played with up there, to be honest. I know uh, Scott Schoenweiss played a bit when I was up there, and uh, Rick Peterson would play a little bit, um, you know, Billy Wagner every now and then. So, uh, you know, we had some guys that would play off and on, but it wasn't like in Atlanta, where basically any given day on the road trip we had a built-in foursome, and, and it was game on.
1: All right. So you obviously you're an athlete and you're a sports fan, and you love the sport. I know you're a big Tiger guy. What was it like to see your guy Tiger win the Masters again last month?
2: It was it was fun. Look, I you know I like Tiger. I've, you know I played a bunch of times with Tiger in spring training, and uh, he was always a lot of fun to play with, and. You know, look, I know it's easy to, to kick a guy when he's down and all that, but I mean, you know, it, it's, it's good to see. I mean, it's good to see that fight. It's good to see that, that competitive fire in him that he wants to get back on top. And, um, you know, whether you love him or hate him, you can't, you can't disagree that when he's in the thick of things in a tournament, it's a lot more fun to watch. I mean, these guys that play today are great. Uh, they're all great players, but it's different when Tigers in the mix. And I think you saw, from the reaction of all those guys coming off of the 18th green at, at Augusta uh, and greeting Tiger and greeting his mom. I think you saw what those, what, what that meant to those guys, knowing what Tiger's meant to the game, what he's meant to those guys uh, and the amount of money that they're able to make in today's game because of Tiger. So uh, I just thought it was a great comeback, a great story, uh, a ton of fun to watch. And uh, like I said, any, any tournament that, he, that he's in, uh, i 'm always rooting for him to be in the mix because it's just it 's just more fun to
1: watch got a few more minutes with Tom Glavin, so Tom, when you think back, I agree with you when you think back on your career, do you find yourself thinking more about the one that you won in ninety five or the one that just kind of slipped away a year later in 96?
2: Um, I mean you always wanna, you always tend to focus more on the positive right because it feels better um, you know I know a lot of people look at what we did. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they talk about the success and then the sentence ends with, yeah, but you only won one World Series. And I get that. And, and, you know, there's anybody on that team that played on those teams over those years that isn't disappointed that we only won one World Series. But, uh, when you look back at the World Series that we played in, um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any regret, so to speak, about how they went down other than the 96 series against the Yankees. I mean, to go into the Yankee Stadium and win two games on the road and, and come home, and, and you know, then we're not able to win the series. I mean, I think that's the one that we look at and think, man, we let that one get away. That one should have been different. All the other ones, you know, it, it's nip or tuck. It's a play here. It's a play there. Uh It's a key base hit here or there. and there. And when I look back at the ones we lost as opposed to 95, that's really what it boils down to. It's a play here or there that if it goes differently, you win, rather than being on the other side of it. So, um you know, it's disappointing, like I say, that we only won the one, but I'll tell you what, that run is success. Um, you know, I I've said for a long time I don't think that's gonna be duplicated ever again in any sport, but the Patriots are getting pretty close to doing it now. But um, you know, I don't know how many more years Brady has left in him, but uh, you know, I, I can I can say for sure that, you know, there isn't anybody in baseball that's gonna go out there and win that many division titles in a row again like we did and, and you know, it, that that probably is a harder accomplishment than going out there and winning, winning another World Series in that span of time.
1: When you're talking divisional titles, you're talking 14 straight from 1991. You know, when you first got started there, I mean, it was not like that, right? There were some lean years, and then the team got really good Back in 91, when Terry Pendleton showed up, he told one of the beat reporters that the team would be contending, and that reporter reportedly said to him, you do realize this is Atlanta and not St. Louis, right? Like, how big a force was Pendleton in the lineup and in the clubhouse when he arrived?
2: Oh, he was huge. Look, I mean, yeah, my my first two year, three years here, I mean, I got called up late in 87, uh, 88, 89, 90. We lost 100 games or close to 100 games. I mean, our, our season was over by Memorial Day, so uh, we were not good, but... During that time, you know, you started to see the wave of young players coming up to the big leagues, kind of like you've seen the last couple of years with this club. Um, you know, you started to see a nucleus of good players. And, you know, I think uh, at that point in time, after the 1990 season, uh, you know, the Braves had John and he and Bobby um, sat down and, and really had a great game plan in terms of identifying that, you know, we needed to get guys who could catch the ball on defense. You know, we had guys uh, pitching for us. You know, myself and Smolty and Avery, and you know, we had guys that uh, were learning how to pitch, but we we needed guys behind us who could catch the ball. And, and you know, all of a sudden, you bring over a guy with the pedigree that Terry Pendleton has, uh, and then you had Sid Bream and and Rafi Belliard, and uh, along with the you know the Blowses and Monkeys and the guys that we already had there. Now, all of a sudden, you've got an infield that can pick it and, you know, go out and get Otis Nixon towards the end of spring training, and now you got a guy in center field that can go get it. You know, all of a sudden it didn't take long for us to get on the mound and, and, you know, throw strikes and see the ball put in play and be like, oh, okay, these guys can play, you know? So it it makes it a little bit easier to be aggressive in the zone and try to pitch the contact and and let those guys work for you. So, you know, it it was just a a great, great plan that, that certainly came to fruition probably a year ahead of time. Um, you know, I think we went into that spring training in 1991 figuring, hey, if we could get the third place in our division and get, you know, 500 or a little bit better, um, you know, it was going to be a really good year. Uh, we just happened to have it all come together a little bit sooner than expected. And, um, you know, it was just, it was so much fun to be a part of that. But yeah, I mean, a guy like Terry Pendleton, I mean, you know, like I said, there's a guy that uh, had come from a winning organization in St. Louis, a guy that... Uh, had a winning way about him that was very influential on all of us young guys about
1: all about your business and what it takes to win and um, it all paid off. So final thought for you before you go. I mean there's fielding your position Tom and then there's Maddox winning 18 gold gloves. There's being able to swing it as a pitcher and then there's your four silver sluggers. What are you taking if you had your choice? His 18 gold gloves or your four silver sluggers?
2: Um, well I'll tell you I, I, I would trade one of my silver sluggers maybe for a gold glove just so I could have one of each. Um, but you know, look, we—I uh, think we were all—we uh, were all pretty good building our position. We were all pretty good hitters. Um, I'll take the silver sluggers just because it's, it's more fun to brag about than the gold gloves.
1: Oh, man, you got to love swinging it. One bonus question, one final thought. Rich Hill, Tom, you probably saw this, recently lost his mind after G Man Choi laid down that bunt to beat the shift against him. I mean, never mind that it was the first inning. There were two outs. He easily erased the runner. He let the F bombs fly. He was none too happy about that. What did you make of his reaction, and where do you come out on the shift?
2: Well, I mean, if, if you're going to shift, and that's, you know, you, you're, a, you're a guy in the box. Uh, and you see an opening like that, why wouldn't you take advantage of it? I mean, you know, we say it all the time when we watch games. You see, you know, again, I'm exaggerating. Okay, we got nine guys on the right side of the field for a left-handed hitter. Why don't you just hit the ball the other way? Well, it's not that easy, first of all. Second of all, if, if that's the conversation you're going to have, then you can't be offended uh, when a guy on the other team takes advantage of that. I mean, the last time I checked, When you go out there on the field to play the game, you're going out there to win. And you're doing anything and everything you can within the rules to try to win that game. And if that means laying down a bunt in the first inning when you got, you know, everybody shifted to one side of the field and you take advantage of that, then good for you. Maybe that team shouldn't shift against you the next time you come into the box. So, you know, look, we we, we used to do it. The only guy we ever really did it against was Barry Bonds. Um, And, yeah, when you hit a ground ball to third base and what would have been a routine ground ball goes into the outfield for a hit, yeah, you're ticked off, but at the same time, you know that, you know, it's probably going to even out and we're going to take some base hits away from him that he pulls to the other side of the field. But, um, you know, I don't love the shift, I guess, because of what it's done to the game offensively. I think it has had a huge impact on making it a three outcome at bat. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing some um, variations on the shift. You know, I've heard of the one that I've heard people talk about that I like is. You know, it doesn't matter if you have nine guys on the side on one side of the infield, but they got to all be on the dirt. They can you know, you can't have that, that second baseman that's playing short right field or things of that nature. So, I think there are things that they could explore to make it, um, so that the uh, offenses is, is a is a little bit more um, consistent as, in a part of the game, and uh, rather than just the home runs, walks, and strikeouts. But again, uh, if you can use it to your advantage and it helps you win ball games, you'd be foolish
1: not to. Alright, so he gave us an amazing half hour. you got to be at the ballpark right now. I just thought of one last thing, really quickly. What do you replay in your head more, Tom? The 300th win at Wrigley, or the 5-iron on the 190-yard par-3 at the Country Club of the South that you hit a few years back? Which one do you think about more? Which day?
2: Um, well, I, I probably think about the 5-iron and one because I play a lot more golf nowadays, so I, I, I come to that hole much more frequently in my life, so I remember it, but um, there's not many there's not many uh there's not many things that will compete um long term for that feeling of winning my 300th game that was uh, that was pretty special
1: i would imagine especially at wrigley tom it had been way too long i can't tell you how much i appreciate all your time getting caught up with you having to do the podcast that was just outstanding i really appreciate it thank you so much
2: my pleasure it was great catching up with you it's been too long
1: If you listen to the program, you know where I'm going with this. Any coach or GM will tell you the foundation of any great team is great talent. So it's no surprise the teams dedicate as much time and effort as they do to finding the right players. The same rule applies when it comes to hiring. You've got to have that top talent but you don't have endless resources in order to find it. Luckily, what you do have is ZipRecruiter. They scout talent for you. With ZipRecruiter, one click sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through that site within the very first day. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash clones. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash C-L-O-N-E-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash clones. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. My thanks to Tom Glavin for the time and the conversation. That was awesome. Speaking of awesome, there are 82 more episodes of awesome just like this one sitting and waiting in the back catalog for you right now, including last week's episode with Roger Lodge, which is getting a ton of run from the Jungle Clones right now. So if you need even more content, go do a deep dive on this podcast guest list from the last two years. I would put that list up against anybody else's. And as always, thank you very much for listening. If you've got the time, leave a review and smash that subscribe button. Appreciate that too. Back next week with F84. But until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. Hey,
2: Milwaukee Bucks. Boom. Out of here.
1: Message saved. Next message.
2: Imagine that. Jay Stew striking out on blind date. Apparently, watching porn with a bunch of dudes didn't help him out. Jay Stew couldn't get action at the Orchid Day Spa with a fistful of f-
1: Message deleted. Next message.
2: Hey, Rome, what's up? This is David from Buffalo calling in about the, the Toronto Raptors going to the finals. I, all I know is this. I just hope they can knock out the Warriors and shut those fuckers up forever.
1: Message deleted. Next message.
2: Rome, it's Ivan from Moscow. Deontay Wilder was correct in the squared circle. If he dies, he dies.
0: Message deleted. Next message.
2: Ventimax.
1: Message deleted. You have no more messages.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever. Or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper the better